Good morning. The most popular school mascot is, do you know? Yep, I heard it. It is a bulldog. Columbus North Bulldogs, there you go. Butler Bulldogs, and you know, the national championship in football this last year in college football were the Georgia Bulldogs. They actually have a live mascot. You ever seen it? This is the Georgia Bulldog right there. Yeah, check that out. Um, I don't know, he does not look all that fierce to me. Maybe a little ugly, but not all that fierce. Um, the second most popular school mascot is a tiger. We get that, don't we? I mean, if you came face to face with a tiger in the jungle, it'd be pretty intimidating. You might wet your pants, something like that. The next one is an eagle. And um, eagles are actually incredible. Um, they can soar up to 10,000 feet, so two miles high, and still spot a prey on the ground from two miles. So I assume that's obviously where the term eagle eye comes from. But they can spot, say, say there's a rabbit on the ground. They can spot it from two miles high. They'll dive bomb at 75 to 100 miles per hour, and boom, snatch it up. Bye-bye, Bugs Bunny, just like that, you know. So you can see why an eagle is such a popular mascot. It would make a good one. You know one you never hear for a mascot, an animal you never hear as a mascot? It's a lamb. I mean, check that out. Cute, no doubt, right? But, I mean, a lamb is meek, it's timid, it's fearful. And, you know, if you had a lamb as your school mascot, what's your cheer? We are the mighty, mighty lambs. Or, um, you know, you score a touchdown, <laughs> it doesn't work at all, does it? Yeah, that's not going to work. And yet, God, when He chose to bring His Son, Jesus, into the world, called Him the Lamb of God. Why? Well, I think the obvious answer is that, you know, a lamb was a very common animal at that time. I mean, you can trace, go back almost to the beginning of the Bible. Abraham was a shepherd. Moses was a shepherd. David, before he came, became king, he was a shepherd boy. When the angels announced the coming of Jesus to earth, his birth at Christmas time, they appeared to shepherds. And even Jesus called himself the good shepherd. But what I want to do um, is just trace the theme of a lamb throughout the Bible for you this morning, Um, but especially as it relates to Jesus, because the lamb actually becomes a picture of Jesus in the Bible. And you can go almost from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and you see this theme of a lamb, especially Jesus as a picture. Um, I've actually never seen this done before. And uh, if I draw it badly enough, no one may ever do it again. But uh, anyway, let's go back to the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus. And there we're introduced to the Passover lamb. It's in Exodus chapters 11 and 12. And the story behind that is the nation of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God told the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, to let them go. He refused, so God sent 
ten plagues into Egypt. The tenth was the death of the firstborn boys in Egypt. But Jesus said, hey, or excuse me, God said, hey, I'll spare you, nation of Israel, if you'll do this. Take a lamb and kill it and take the blood of that lamb. Smear it on your doorpost. And when I go through, I will see your faith, your faith in me to deliver you, your faith in me to save you, and I will pass over your house and you will be spared. And that was the Passover lamb. And that begins to form that picture of Jesus. Then throughout the Old Testament, there are sacrifices in the tabernacle, in the the temple, and it goes throughout the Old Testament. And what God said is if you'll take a lamb and kill that lamb and shed its blood, it will be your substitute. That sacrifice will be your substitute for your sins. Then John the Baptist, when he came along right before Jesus, the first time John the Baptist saw Jesus, he looked at him and he said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's actually in John 1.19. Even the Apostle Paul, who wrote so many books of the second half of our Bible, the New Testament, he said this. He said, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He said that in 1 Corinthians 5.7. But then we get to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and here's what it says. Worthy is the Lamb. It's Revelation 4 and 5. And guess what? This is exactly where we are today. We're going to look at Revelation 4 and 5, which is the culmination, the culmination of this theme of Jesus as the Lamb. Now, when we think of Revelation, sometimes uh, what comes to mind is gloom and doom. You know, we think of words like eerie, bizarre, weird. The word apocalypse, which is a Greek word for revelation, may conjure up all sorts of images for you. It's just a Greek word, and it means a revealing or a revelation. But, you know, if you think of it, when you hear of or see a movie that has the word apocalypse in it, you know what's coming, right? I mean, how many zombie apocalypse movies are there? Uh, Have you seen any of them? Don't admit it if you have, all right? But what you may not realize is some of the greatest passages and promises in the Bible for the follower of Jesus come from the book of Revelation. And we get to look at one of those this morning. Honestly, these two chapters that we're going to cover this morning are two of my favorite in the Bible. They're incredible, amazing, awesome, astounding, breathtaking, spectacular, magnificent, even mind-blowing, and I may have just understated it. Revelation 4 and 5 are going to leave you with so much hope this morning. I, I think of these chapters often because of the images they bring to mind. We sing songs here in church about these two chapters all the time. So you ready to dive in? All right, here's Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Then as I, that's John, who Adam told us first week, wrote the book of Revelation. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, and the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. 
The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, I was in the Spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So now the scene is heaven. In fact, that's going to be the scene throughout chapters 4 and 5. And it is almost indescribable. If you're a believer, a follower of Jesus, Jesus will have come back now, and you will now be in heaven. It's called the rapture. So you're a part of what we're going to read about in the future. And by the way, you're going to hear me use terms like rapture, tribulation. We don't have time to go into all those and explain them from the book of Revelation. July 30th, that Sunday evening, we're going to have a Q&A here at the church. If you have questions about that, submit them. Come that evening and we'll go into more detail about that. But John is about to describe what is happening in heaven while the tribulation is taking place on earth. The theme of Revelation isn't about future events. It's not about the end of the world. It's not about catastrophic events or the judgment of God on the earth, even though all those things are discussed. The ultimate theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus. And that's going to become so clear in these two chapters we're going to look at this morning. Um, I'm going to start reading in Revelation chapter 4, verse 3 again. And as I do, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to try to envision or picture what is happening here. Form a mental picture in your mind and engage all your senses. If you were there, what would you see? What would you feel? What would you smell? What would you hear? Because Revelation is full of descriptive language and imagery. So here we go. Here is verse 3. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. As the glow of the emerald circled his throne, like, and the glow of the emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. Twenty-four thrones surrounded him, and twenty-four elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and the rumble of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold Spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass, sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings each covered with eyes, front and back. Now verse 8. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day, and night after night, they kept saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and is still to come. Now verse 11. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and they exist because you created what you pleased. Wow. Here's a real quick explanation of what is happening. The one sitting on the throne is Jesus. And the throne is the focal point of chapters 4 and 5. It's mentioned 18 times. Now there's a lot of debate about who the 24 elders are, but I believe they're representatives of the church, all believers, which would be you if you're a follower of Jesus. And the four living beings described in verses 6 to 8 
are angels, which it's actually consistent with how they're described in the first half of the Bible, the Old Testament, because in the Old Testament they have six wings. Now you read some of this and it's a, just a little bizarre, isn't it? You know, the eyes and all the wings and all that, especially when you try to picture it. And it could even sound more like a monster movie to you, but it's symbolic language describing with the eyes that they're just aware of everything that's happening around them. And angels are actually in a guardian or protective role, and that's apparent what they're doing here, guarding the throne. But don't let the imagery distract you from the focus of this event. It's worship of Jesus. You get a sense... John almost is at a loss for words to describe in human language the magnitude of what's happening here. Um, Thirty-some years ago, I went to a church leadership conference in Chicago that blew me away. I mean, it changed my life. It showed me a new way to do church, a way that could help people who'd given up on church connect with church and God again. And when I got home, I couldn't describe to others what I had experienced. My wife, Janet, didn't go, and I got home and I just told her, you got to go with me sometime to experience this yourself. I can't describe it. And I think that's, that's a little bit of what John felt the whole time he was writing down this revelation. Words just can't do it justice. Well, so as I was reading that, What did you imagine? What came to mind for you? What did you hear? Um, My hearing's not near as good as it used to be. In fact, it's just getting plain bad, to be honest with you. I've lost a lot through the years. But just so you know, when this occurs, I think by then I'll be hearing loudly and clearly. And here's what you and here's what I will hear. We will hear holy Holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And we will hear that over and over and over and over again. Occasionally I'll hear someone say that worship shouldn't be about loud music, light flashing, and haze. But when I read this, I hear loud music, I see flashing lights, and I smell smoke. And it's all directed at the one who sits on the throne. Sometimes when we think of worship, we imagine great sounding music or we evaluate it based on how it makes us feel. But worship is not about us. The object of our worship is what makes it worship. And the focus of Revelation 4 and 5 isn't on the music. It's not about how it makes people feel, how loud or how well they sing, whether or not they clap or raise their hands. Not that there's anything wrong to, with doing any of those things. Just know that the focus is on Jesus. Worship should always be about Jesus. Any expression of our worship is letting Jesus know that He's worthy. And that can be through singing. And I love to be part of when the worship band leads us here. I 
thoroughly enjoy attending worship concerts. I listen to worship music regularly. But it can also be through serving. It can be through giving. It can be simply by choosing to do the right thing because we want to honor Jesus. Many other ways. Anything that gives honor to Him is worship. In fact, a true worshiper will serve and give because they have a heart of gratitude. Many, many years ago, I was teaching on worship. And um, I pointed out that true worship can be about serving Him if done with the right attitude. And at the time, we had a volunteer treasurer here at the church. And he would sit in this little office alone every week. It was actually in our old building. We called it the treasurer's office. Rather creative name. Um, He would sit there week after week by himself, and he would crunch numbers. It was a thankless job. And I remember after I'd spoken on worship that Sunday, um, he came up to me with tears in his eyes, and he pointed in the direction of the treasurer's office. And he said, I worshiped in that office this week. And that was very meaningful for me to hear, because I truly believe Jesus loved the worship that came from that little treasure's office every week because the reason he was doing it is he wanted to serve Jesus by serving our church. Listen closely to what I'm going to say next. This is important. When confronted with the God of the Bible, the first response that people have is to fall on their face and declare, Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. You know, we put a lot of emphasis on the love of God, and we should. The Bible says God is love. God showed us His love by sending Jesus into our world to die for us. But the predominant characteristic of people and angels, when you read the Bible, when they're in the presence of God, is His holiness. The word holy simply means set apart. And with God, it means He's set apart from everyone and everything. He's without sin, no imperfections. And honestly, sometimes I wonder if we're missing that. God is love, absolutely. But He is also holy. And when we're in His presence, I believe there's going to be a sense of awe or reverence. We could even call it a respectful fear that we need to remember. It's a call for us to clean up our act. We need to take sin seriously. Because as the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, you must be holy because I am holy. It's a call to be set apart from anything that is sinful or morally wrong. Not from the people, but from the sin itself. And let's look inwardly. What in my life needs to be confessed, repented of, turned from? What do I need to make right? Let's look in our hearts. Sure, there are the outward acts that matter. But are there selfish motives, pride, anger, jealousy, greed? Someone I haven't forgiven. Complacency. Or just even wanting to control my life instead of surrendering control to God. Be holy. Because He is holy. One day, we're going to stand in the presence 
of a holy God. And we're going to say over and over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and is still to come. Now, chapter 4 ends by declaring that the one on the throne, Jesus, is worthy. And that theme continues on to chapter 5. So I want to keep reading in chapter 5. And remember, this is a picture of what heaven will be like after the rapture. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are going to be part of this. Look what happens next. This is chapter 5. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Now this scroll is important to remember because it actually becomes a theme throughout much of the rest of the book of Revelations. This scroll is going to describe judgments during the tribulation time period, which we'll begin looking at next week in chapter 6. There are going to be three groups of seven judgments, and they begin with seals. The question which the angel asks is, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer, of course, is, There's only one worthy, and it's Jesus. Here's verse 5. Look, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. Now, this is the first time in the book of Revelation that Jesus is mentioned as a lamb. But did you notice before he's called a lamb, he's actually called a lion? Now this could appear to be confusing. I mean, is he a lion or is he a lamb? And the answer is he's both. It's a paradox. Jesus is like the fiercest and the meekest animal. And we don't have time to go into all the details of the significance of this, but it's filled with imagery from the Old Testament, first half of the Bible. The lion means he is king. The lamb means he was our sacrifice. By the way, if you see Jesus as just meek and maybe kind of cuddly, then just wait till we get to Revelation chapter 19. You're going to see Jesus as the lion there. It says he's going to come and judge and wage war, and he's not going to put up with people's disobedience and defiance forever. He is coming back as a lion. God is an incredible God of grace and love. But there will come a point, because he's also just, when he'll say, enough is enough. But for now, Revelation 4 and 5, the Lamb. Remember the theme of the Lamb in the Bible that we traced? Revelation is telling us of the culmination of the theme of the Lamb, where He is honored and worshipped and crowned King. Um, let's Let's look at what happens when Jesus the Lamb takes that scroll we referred to. And this is one of the highlights of the book 
of Revelation. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seal and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. And they will reign on earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang a mighty chorus. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. (laughs) I read that and I feel like we just need a moment of silence. Thousands and millions of creatures singing at the top of their lungs. Worthy is the Lamb. Too many people singing to even count. I mean, what a scene. All of heaven is focused on the Lamb. It's really a scene like none other. And remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're going to be part of it. Maybe you've been to a concert and the music and the crowd just really moved you. And it was hard to describe what you experienced. Maybe you've been to an exciting sporting event. Maybe a playoff game. Maybe it was a movie. Maybe it was a show. None of those can even come close to comparing. They can't compare what it'll be like to worship Jesus in His presence. will actually be in His presence. So what do we do with all this? Well, let me give you three things. Here's the first one. Get ready. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and surrendered your life to Him, please do that. Your future is so bright if you do that. And if not, your future isn't so bright. Second, be ready. If you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be ready. How? Well, let me give you a couple ways. Um, 1 John 3.3 in the Bible tells us that as we await Jesus' return, and it could be at any moment, we need to keep ourselves pure. So is there something you need to make right? A sin you need to repent of? Something you need to confess? A relationship you need to mend? But we can also be ready by being watchful of His return. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24 to be ready and waiting. Watching and waiting for Him to return. And finally, be hope-filled. Sometimes we let all this stuff, this junk that's happening in our world, get us down. And things seem to be getting worse rather than better, don't they? But if you're a follower of Jesus, don't become discouraged. Don't become cynical. Your future is incredibly bright. Jesus will make all things right. And you will spend all eternity 
worshiping the lion and the lamb, the holy one who gave his life for you because he loves you so much. And you will want all eternity to do that. I'd like to pray for us. God, thank you for giving us so much hope for what awaits us in the future if we're followers of Jesus, if we're believers. Sometimes this world can get us down a little bit. We can get discouraged. We can even get cynical. And my prayer is when that happens, we'll turn our thoughts to what awaits us, a a scene like Revelation 4 and 5 describes. And God, right now, we're going to take a few minutes and worship you. And my prayer is that what we're going to do now will just give us a touch, even just a glimpse of what it's going to be like that day in all eternity, actually, in Revelation 4 and 5, when we'll be singing, Worthy is the Lamb. And Jesus, it's in your name I pray. Amen.